Jeremy Schaap, you recently traveled all over the planet to report one of the most staggering stories that you and E60 have ever done. And you tell it through the life of this one man. Who is it? Pablo, his name is Shaul Adani, and he is now 86 years old. And he competed in two Olympic games as a race walker. And he's he's kind of a legend in the sport. He still holds a world record. And, and his specialty was the longer races. The longer, the better for Shaul. This past winter, when we started putting this story together, our crew met Shaul in his house at two in the morning in Israel so they could travel with him up to Tel Aviv for the Tel Aviv Marathon. Mm. And he was going to do the half marathon. So 13.1 miles at the time at the age of 85. Man. What is the hardest part of the marathon? In the half marathon? Yes. The first 21 kilometers. You're not afraid? I'm not afraid of anything. Pablo, the thing about Shaul, though, the race walking element of his story is perhaps one of the least interesting parts of it. As interesting as I find race walking, I know you do as well. Same, absolutely. The race walking is a conduit to his bigger story, which is a remarkable story. You could say an unmatched story of facing the worst horrors of the 20th century and living through them. This is an ITN news flash from the Olympic Village in Munich, where early this morning, armed Palestinian guerrillas raided the sleeping quarters of the Israeli team. Pablo, 50 years ago, this month in Munich, the Olympics there, the Games of the 20th Olympiad, was shattered when terrorists broke into the Olympic Village early on the morning of September 5th, 1972 and attacked the Israeli delegation. The gunmen shot dead two Israelis and are now holding 20 athletes and six officials as hostages. Shaul was one of the Israelis in the delegation, staying in apartment two at 31 Connolly Strasse. That's the story that we want to tell on the 50th anniversary, what happened there, this terrible tragedy at Munich. But for Shaul, it was not the first time he found himself in the crosshairs of history. In fact, 28 years earlier, he had been to Germany as a prisoner of the Third Reich. Inside the gates of the Belsen concentration camp is a city of the living dead. Human beings reduced to worse degradation than the world has known even in the darkest age. And he lived to tell that tale as well. When I think about Shaul Adani, I think about the ultimate survivor. That's Shaul's story. You did not need one single lucky event to survive, but to survive you needed a series of lucky events. Fortunately for me, I had them. The events that happened 50 years ago this month may seem like ancient history, 
at this point. And in fact, the 1972 Munich Olympics were designed to make the world forget about the history, the horrors of Nazi Germany, which were decades before that. But one man has lived through all of it. And today, Jeremy Schapp brings us the story of Shaul Ladani, an athlete whose life, whose luck, is the story of the 20th century itself. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, September 16th. This is ESPN Daily. So, Jeremy, we need to begin here in 1972 at the Munich Games, where our protagonist, Shaul Ladani, is competing for the nation of Israel. But these specific Olympics, they were not just any Olympics, right? What made them so important? So, Pablo, we have the Olympic Games at this point taking place in Germany for the first time since 1936. The Games of the 11th Olympiad in Berlin, which are synonymous with the Third Reich, Nazi banners, swastikas, mm. Adolf Hitler presiding over the Games. So and these games are the first in Germany since World War II, the first since the Holocaust. This is just a single generation after those events. And West Germany, remember at this time, of course, Germany is still divided into two countries, East and West. Yes. West Germany wants to project an image of a Germany transformed. The German Olympic Committee has gone out of its way to show that Munich 1972 will be nothing like Berlin 1936. They have dubbed this Olympiad die Heiteren Spiele, the Serene Olympics, and I think that's the way it will be. The idea, Jeremy, clearly here is look how far we've come. Look how different everything is now. That's exactly it. Everything is different. We are a different country. This is not the Germany of Hitler. This is not World War I, World War II. This is not the Holocaust. This is a Germany of optimism and positivity and inclusiveness that has reckoned with its past. Obviously, the delegation from Israel shows up with a certain spotlight, Jeremy, on them. Given this context, what was it like at the opening ceremonies for them? Yeah, no one feels the weight of this history more than the Israelis for obvious reasons. And at the opening ceremony at this Olympic stadium, you know, this joyful celebration, the Israelis get an exceptionally warm welcome. Take a look at the team from Israel and listen to the spirited welcome that they're getting from the German crowd. And when you think about all that history and all of the tragedy and what it means, remember, you know, it's not only that the games have returned to Germany, right? They are specifically in Munich. This is the city where the seeds of the Holocaust were planted in the early 1920s. You could call it the birthplace of Nazism. And the Olympic Stadium is mere miles from the Nazis' first concentration camp, Dachau. And so for Shaul Adani, what did this moment arriving at these Olympics as a competitor, what did they mean to him personally? As a Jew, as part of the diaspora, 
as one of those who returned to Israel shortly after the creation of the state, Shul was always proud to represent Israel. I was proud to go and to show that despite the fact that the Third Reich wanted to eliminate us, we are still here and we are able uh, proudly to compete at the same level with the rest of the world. Representing Israel meant everything to him. But so did the competition itself. He was a fierce competitor, and he was considered a medal contender going into the games. And he had done remarkable things in the lead-up to the games, establishing world records at the longer distances, at 50 miles, uh, which is not an Olympic category. The longest Olympic event is 50 kilometers, 31 miles. But to be back in Germany, considering what he had experienced as a child there, was, of course, another layer of significance. You just alluded to Shaul's childhood, Jeremy. What should we know about what he experienced growing up? He was born in Belgrade, which is now the capital of Serbia, but at the time was the capital of Yugoslavia, in 1936, into a Jewish family with roots not in Belgrade, but in Hungary. My father was a chemical engineer and a patent attorney. My mother, after one year of studies of law, uh, succeeded to catch my father and they got married. As a little kid in Belgrade, he's speaking three languages almost from birth. He speaks German with his nanny. He speaks Hungarian with his parents, and he speaks Serbian at school and with his friends. They lived a middle-class life, and at once it all changed abruptly. Shaul is born in 1936. On September 1st, 1939, World War II in Europe starts with the German invasion of Poland. Poland, September 1939. The German foe begins its ruthless march of conquest and sets the stage for World War II. But for Shaul and for the people of Yugoslavia, it's April 6th, 1941, 19 months after Poland's invaded when everything changes. And that is when Germany attacks and invades Yugoslavia. A bomb falls on his home in the first hours of the attack. There at once, a huge noise. The house was shaking. The bomb fell diagonally. My mother fell on me to protect me. And several persons were killed there. I was four days after my uh, fifth birthday. This is Shaul's 
first brush with death at the age of five in Belgrade on that day, April 6, 1941, when Germany attacks Yugoslavia. And so what does this Jewish family in Belgrade and Yugoslavia do as war is raining down on them? So now they have some very difficult choices to make. They can stay in Yugoslavia, which is under this bombardment. And the troops are rolling in, and it's only a matter of time before the country will be occupied by the Germans. Or they can go back to where they came from, meaning the family's roots in Hungary. And the context here, remember Pablo, is interesting too. So Hungary at this time is not yet officially an ally of Germany's, but it's heading, it's trending in that direction. Mm. They are sympathetic to the Germans. They are allied with the Germans, even if they're not officially allies. That won't come until a little bit later. But because Hungary is not standing in opposition to Germany, there are no German troops in Hungary. And so they have to decide, are we going to be better off here in Yugoslavia where we're fighting the Germans, but who knows for how long, or going to a place where they are allied with the Germans Maybe we'll be safer there. And they make the decision to go to Hungary. When the darkness appeared, we left on foot. Convoys of soldiers passed us and they shouted on my mother that she should remove the white sweater that I had on me because it might disclose us to the German airplanes. The family arrives in what seems to be the safer option in Hungary. And life there in those first few years, Jeremy, looks like what? Well, Shaul describes it as mostly normal. His father is able to find work. He's able to go to school. The Germans are not in Hungary rounding up the Jews. Some Jews are rounded up, young men, and they become forced labor. But for Shaul's family, from the time they get to Budapest in 1941, really until early 1944, it is an almost normal existence for them. A few items from Russia's winter program. Soviet troops turning from retreat to attack, driving the powerful and hitherto invincible German army back across the snow. Now we're in early 1944, and the tide of the war has turned against Germany. Isolated details of the enormous German casualties. 350,000 killed in two months. The Red Army is advancing from the east. The Americans and the British and the Canadians, their invasion of Northwest Europe is imminent. And so now the Hungarians are trying to consider their position. Hey, we don't want to tie our fate anymore with Germany. That seems like a loser. And so to prevent Hungary from switching sides, the Germans now occupy Hungary, which instantly changes the situation for the hundreds of thousands of Jews living in the country. Adolf Eichmann, the SS colonel, who is the architect of the final solution, the plan to eradicate the Jews of Europe, he goes to Budapest. In a period of just a few weeks, the Germans deport 
more than 400,000 Jews from Hungary to Auschwitz in Poland, the death camp. They kill almost all of them in a matter of weeks. 425,000 died at Auschwitz in the spring and summer of 1944. 425,000. Already millions of Jews are being slaughtered around German-occupied Europe, and they're dying and being murdered in a variety of ways, but the Germans still have more work to do. For Shaul and his family specifically, as all of this is happening, what is going on with them? They are sent out of the country. On June 30th, 1944, Shaul and his mother and his father and his two sisters, they leave Budapest on a train in cattle cars. But unlike the vast majority of the Jews in Hungary, they are not sent to Poland they are on the famous Kastner train, named for the Jewish journalist and attorney Israel Kastner. Mm. The Kastner train, 1,700 people, about 1,700 people are on this train leaving Budapest on June 30th. They are part of this extraordinary episode where Israel Kastner has been negotiating with Adolf Eichmann to save the lives of of this small fraction of Hungarian Jews. This very small percentage right. of Jews, 1,700 amid hundreds of thousands, who are going to be spared in exchange for valuables. And they think that they are on their way now to freedom. And so this negotiation with the Nazis for their safety, for their freedom, ultimately results in what? You know, when they're leaving, they think they're on their way to a neutral country probably Portugal or Switzerland. But after nine days in these terrible conditions on the train, whole families, young and old, they arrive in northern Germany to a place called Birkenbelsen. Inside the gates of the Belsen concentration camp is a city of the living dead, human beings reduced to worse degradation than the world has known even in the darkest age. It's not an extermination camp. There were no gas chambers at Bergen-Belsen. People died there from disease and starvation. They have to stand for hours at the German roll calls. They ordered us, uh, get out, take whatever we had, and start to march. Shaul talks about, you know, and he's eight years old, he talks about the hunger. Besides the cold, I remember the hunger, the hunger. We all lost weight. And my mother, she gave whatever she had to us, the children. So she was so thin, unbelievable. And the uncertainty of their situation, imagine how that weighs on them. He remembers very specifically a single tomato and what it signified for him. They had two fences, one a barbed wire fence and um, an electric fence. And uh, in between those fences, tomato plants started to grow. My eyes grow bigger 
for the desire to get and eat those tomatoes without being able to reach them. I always just felt the daily survivor. The Kastner Jews, because they are being exchanged, there's nothing obviously pleasant about it that is an understatement, but it is survivable. Mm. And in fact, the Kastner Jews all did survive. In August, 300 Jewish prisoners at Bergen-Belsen are sent to Switzerland. But that leaves the vast majority, 1,500 or so, 1,400 or so, still at Bergen-Belsen for another four months. And on December 4th, 1944, Joel's family actually gets on trains now and they go to Switzerland with the rest of the Castor Jews. On May 7th, 1945, it's formal. On May 8th, V days, May 8th, 1945, the war in Europe is over. At this point, they've been in Switzerland for five months. And amid all of the horrors, the enormity of the war in Europe, the genocide, six million of their fellow Jews dead, the Ladanis and Shaul, they have survived. And so all of those experiences, surviving the war, surviving those bombings, surviving life in a concentration camp, how did they shape the rest of Shaul's life, Jeremy? Not just as a person, but also as this athlete. He was a kid and he spent five months at Bergen-Belsen. And he'd also, when he was younger, survived, you know, the horrific bombing of Belgrade on April 6th and that, that trek into Hungary. You know, he survived all, all these terrors. You know, those kinds of experiences, you don't forget those. How do you think it affected you seeing so much suffering around you? It uh, forged my behavior for the rest of my life. Willing to accept very difficult situations. It motivated me for achievements. Coming up, Shaul Adani and the darkest day in Olympics history. Delicious meat, nutritious. In the snack that packs a real protein punch, wonderful pistachios, one of the highest protein nuts out there. Each one-ounce serving has six grams of protein, giving you over 10% of your daily value. Trust me, I've been eating them like there's no tomorrow all week. Wonderful pistachios also come in a variety of flavors and sizes, perfect for enjoying with your family and friends or taking them with you on the go. And you, like me, are on the go a lot taking the kids to school, hopping from meeting to meeting, shopping for groceries, whatever it may be. Well, the good news is not only are Wonderful Pistachios a complete protein providing all nine essential amino acids, they're also great for all your adventures. So whether you're a pistachio purist who loves cracking open every nut or you prefer the convenience of no-shells pistachios, Wonderful Pistachios has got you covered. 
Grab Wonderful Pistachios and elevate your snack game today. Visit WonderfulPistachios.com to learn more. Shaul Adani is 12 years old at this point in our story, Jeremy. And he and his family had survived the Holocaust. They had crisscrossed across Europe to get out of harm's way. And now they're in Switzerland. Where do they go next? After the war, they leave Switzerland. They wanted to get out of Europe, as you could understand. And many of the Jews who survived World War II felt exactly the same way. The preferred destination, the goal was to get to Israel. Israel is established as a state in 1948, recognized by the United States. And within a few months, the Ladani family has left Europe behind and has arrived in Israel. You had to fight for your life, for survival everywhere you had been. Why did you come here to Israel? First, they were fed up with Europe, fed up because of the Holocaust. They were really no options. Here he is, Shaul, in Israel in 1948, right at the birth of the state. And he goes to school and, and he joins the army, as everyone else does, which is mandatory, and he becomes a soldier. And it's kind of a peculiar thing from the early years of the state of Israel, but they had these multi-day marches. You know, it'd be like three or four days where, you know, soldiers are marching up and down the country. And this is really when Shaul is in the army and he's taking part in these marches where he discovers that he has this gift. He's got remarkable stamina and endurance and he's fast. And it's a talent that is nurtured because of these marches, a feature of Israeli society at this time. And he becomes a kind of celebrity. The Israeli press uh, called me the king of the marches because I was so fast. From that time on, I became a race walker. Jeremy, we have discussed a lot of very heavy, complicated historical events here. But now I I, I do think we really need to dig in on what race walking actually is. I wish I knew, Pablo. (laughs) It still kind of confuses me, you know, and it looks funny, right? You know, and I know, you know, you're, you're never supposed to be in the air, right? Like one foot always has to be touching the ground. It's about not running. It's about not running. That's a good way of putting it. It does feel, I got to say, you know, speaking for everybody here, it feels a little silly. Yes. A race walker needs to neglect various unsympathetic remarks. Why? Because it's not common. People have not seen. It seems to them strange. They don't understand the technique. But the point you're making here is that endurance, the gift that Shaul had discovered that he had, was fitting very perfectly into a sport that is a lot tougher than it seems. It's a very tough sport. And and really what it rewards, you know, uh, the rewards are mostly pain. And so what do you need in Shaul's estimation, Jeremy, to actually be good at this sport? 
Well, I asked him that, and the answer wasn't what I expected. When they ask me what you need to be a good race walker, I say, good teeth. Teeth? Teeth. So when you feel the pain and you need the effort to be able to grind your teeth. <laughs> you're making it sound very appealing. <laughs> Especially when you're doing it the way he did it, up and down mountains. And he wasn't doing, you know, 10Ks and 20Ks. I mean, that's, that's nothing for Shaul. He was doing 100 miles, 100 kilometers, 62 miles. <laughs> the longer distances, he can beat anybody on any given day. And in fact, in 1966, uh, when he's living in the U.S., studying at Columbia, he breaks the U.S. record at 50 miles. A record, by the way, which had stood since 1878. <laughs> it was a compulsion with him. That seems ungenerous, but I think he would admit it too. He needed it. And this is a guy who, by the way, we, we did the math at one point, okay? He estimates that he's walked 450,000 miles in his life, okay? <laughs> now, that's 14 miles a day. Jeez. Every day. Jeez. Okay, every day. And that's going back to, you know, the first 20 years of his life, he wasn't a walker. And so this sport where you suffer and you endure and you take it, right? It's kind of this perfect expression of Shaul's character, of who he is. You know, the goal is to survive. And I do want to keep in mind here that, as you said before, Shaul's specialty is like the longer distances, 50 miles plus. And so... When he qualifies for the Olympic Games in Mexico City, this is 68, he's 32 years old, and in the longest event the Olympics offers, the 50-kilometer race, which is just 31 miles, he ends up finishing 24th. And so as he's preparing for the Games in Munich in 72, what happens? For him, he's really only getting warmed up at 31 miles, which is 50 kilometers. So, you know, he has kind of a disappointing performance in Mexico City, but he's entirely undeterred. Now we've got the Munich Olympics coming up in 72, and now he breaks the world record. He already had the U.S. record. He breaks the world record at 50 miles. And he's looking exceptionally strong going into Munich, and many consider him a medal contender. Good afternoon, I'm Jim McKay, and seated with me is Eric Siegel, who'll be doing the commentary here at the Olympic Stadium with me today. Everything is just right, just perfect, for the arrival of the flame, for the giving of the oath, for the official opening of the Games of the 20th Olympiad. Given the backdrop here of Munich and 72 and Shaul's life being fully shaped by World War II and the Holocaust, Jeremy... How did he feel about competing in Germany for Israel? He couldn't wait. He was very excited about this opportunity, of course, to do it in Germany, where he'd been a prisoner of the Third Reich. To do it as an Israeli was very significant to him. I was the only survivor on the team, and uh, one of the articles in Munich about me was that uh, Saul Adani is walking on familiar grounds. And so here we are. It is September 3rd, 1972. It is race day for Shaul Adani, the only Holocaust survivor on the Israeli Olympic team. And in this 50-kilometer race walking event, 
How does he do? Well, the, the race starts. The race starts and ends in the Olympic Stadium. And uh, you can imagine, you know, the adrenaline, all that. And he starts by doing exactly what he shouldn't do. In the stadium, I found myself among the leaders. I immediately put on the brakes. You're going too fast. Stupidity. The walkers are coming back, and first of all is Bert Conenberg. Fortunately, I had very strong endurance. Therefore, I was able to continue at a relatively good pace, but not an excellent pace. Shoal finishes 19th in 4 hours, 24 minutes, and 38 seconds. I was disappointed, but so it, I, I know that in races, once you have a good day, in other races, you, you have a, a worse day and sometimes a, a better day. Maybe next time. The day after that, September 4th, Shaul has the day off, right? He is not competing. He's done. Yep. And so that night, along with the Israeli delegation of Olympians, what do they all decide to do? So they're invited to this special performance in central Munich of Fiddler on the Roof. And the star playing Tevia is an Israeli actor, a famous Israeli actor, I believe, named Shmuel Radonsky. So the whole team goes to see Fiddler on the Roof. And again, you imagine the significance, right? Here we are in Munich the birthplace of Nazism. The Israeli team is going to see this Broadway musical about life in the shtetls of Eastern Europe. Yes. And they all go and, you know, they, they see the performance and they, um, they take a picture together. During the intermission, the whole team was invited to the stage behind the curtain. Somebody took a photograph. We did not know a few hours later on, they will be massacred. After the performance, they go back to the building where the Israeli delegation is staying in the Olympic Village, 31 Connolly Strasse. Most of the Israelis are staying in apartments one through five. You've got coaches, you've got Israeli officials like referees, You've got the head of the delegation. You've got the medical personnel. You've got about 20 people or so. They don't get back until past midnight. What does Shaul remember about what happened once they got back to these rooms? One of the wrestling coaches, his name is Moisha Weinberg. He asks Shaul if he can borrow his alarm clock because... Moishe's uh, wrestlers have to get up early. Moshe Weinberg, Muni was his uh, nickname, asked me to lend him an alarm clock. Around one o'clock in the morning, I brought my alarm clock to apartment one, and I went back to my apartment, and around three o'clock in the morning, turned off the light and then went to sleep. So now it's about 4.30 in the morning. Shul's only been asleep, he estimates, for about 90 minutes. And he's awakened suddenly by another occupant of his apartment, apartment two. 
an Olympic target shooter named Zelig Stork. I see Zelig Stork, and he says, Arabs killed Muni. Terrorists have broken into 31 Connolly Strasse. They've gone into apartments one and three. And almost immediately, Moisha Weinberg, who had borrowed the alarm clock from Shaul, is shot and killed. And a weightlifter named Yosef Romano has been mortally wounded. But there are nine others, Israelis as well, who have been captured by terrorists. And now they're being held hostage. Now, again, they'd gone into apartments one and three, not into apartment two, where Shaul and Zelig Stork were. Mm. I just walked to the entrance door of the apartment, which opened to the inside, and stood there. Just to the right of me, about four to five meters to me, somebody stood there. He was dressed with a hat. I saw his brownish dark skin. There were four uniformed guards in a line among them two women. And one of the uh, women asked him to allow the Red Cross to enter to allow some aid to somebody. He answered no. And then she wanted to convince him. She said, you should be humane. And he replied, the Jews are not human either. I retreated to inside to the apartment. At that moment, somebody said, the Arabs will probably try to catch us. Let's get away. Somebody moved that sliding glass door. We went onto the terrace to the end, looked left, right, and then started to run on the lawn, which was sloping down in, in zigzags and disappeared. No one knows why they didn't go into apartment two. There are theories about it. Shaul has a theory. He thinks it's because the terrorists, the Palestinian terrorists, knew that marksmen, Henry Hershkowitz and Zelig Stork, were in there and might have their weapons with them. Yeah, Olympic marksmen, competitors for Israel. That's right. Target shooters. The prevailing school of thought, though, is that after going into apartment one, they were led to apartment three by Moisha Weinberg because in apartment three, you had some of the biggest and strongest guys in the delegation, the wrestlers and the weightlifters. So for reasons that are not clear to anybody to this day, Jeremy, Shaul's apartment, his specific room was spared. And so he is able to escape. He can leave the scene Right. But when does the outside world know? When do they learn what happened? Almost immediately. The word is spreading very quickly. You know, in ABC, which is the host network for the games in the United States, they get on the air very quickly with Jim McKay, still in a wet swimsuit. He's been pulled from a pool where he's swimming his laps early in the morning. It goes right back to the Olympic Village and gets on the air. Good afternoon. I'm Jim McKay speaking to you live at this moment from ABC headquarters just outside the Olympic Village in Munich, West Germany. 
The peace of what has been called the Serene Olympics was shattered when terrorists, armed with submachine guns, went to the headquarters of the Israeli team and immediately killed one man, Moshe Weinberg, a coach. And so a couple of obvious questions occur to me now, Jeremy. We know the security was lax deliberately as part of the theater of friendliness around these games. But still, how did this happen and who were these terrorists? This is what happened because there was virtually no security in place. They've been making this attempt to make this not the police state Olympics, to make it the Olympics of Serenity. And now this lack of tight security apparently has contributed at least in some way to the entrance of these guerrillas into the village. Again, we don't want this to look like 1936. Mm. We want this to be a party. Yes. And nothing like those Nazi rallies in 1936. They didn't want security to intrude on the atmosphere. And so the terrorists had simply hopped over a fence into the village. They were wearing tracksuits, but they probably could have been wearing camouflage. Mm. And it wouldn't have made a difference at that hour with nobody really paying attention to what was going on in the perimeter. And they were all members of militant Palestinian group known as Black September, a fairly mysterious organization. They were armed with AK-47s and hand grenades. And they were going to demand that more than 200 prisoners be released in Israel in exchange for the lives of these hostages. And that Germany released two prominent leftist terrorists who were in prison, the leaders of the famous Bader-Meinhof gang, Andreas Bader and Ulrike Meinhof. And beyond that, of course, it was also an opportunity to bring attention to their cause. And... What better way to bring attention than to perpetrate this attack at the Olympic Games? And they said if their demands weren't met, they would kill all the hostages. And so at this point, Jeremy, the German police is where in all of this? What are they doing? What do they start to try to do to save the hostages? So the Germans are trying to figure out what they can do and how they are going to resolve this situation. But it was kind of beyond the capabilities of the Munich police and the Bavarian police to really deal with this. They know very little about who these terrorists are. They don't even know how many of them are there. Mm. Most people involved figured, okay, we're gonna figure out a way to make an exchange. We can save the rest of the hostages. And so they start this long series of negotiations. They had set a deadline of noon, which is just an hour and 15 minutes ago, saying that they were going to kill all of their hostages at that time. In the event the ultimatum is not heeded, orders would be given, quote, to carry out revolutionary and just force in order to give the war chiefs of the Israeli war machine a hard lesson, unquote. So originally there's a deadline set for noon. That passes, there are negotiations. They don't know if the terrorists are watching TV, but all these images are out in the world. You know, you can see German police trying to like take positions at the top of the building, across the way. So it's almost as if the cameras are also compromising the rescue efforts. This is happening now, if you can possibly believe that, at the games of the 20th Olympiad. Peter Jennings is in the village. Peter, can you see this going on? 
I have a slightly different vantage point, but once again, there is a delegation directly under the building. Underneath. It just keeps dragging on. And then a new deadline is set for 5 p.m. by the terrorists. A police spokesman said a squad of 38 volunteers would storm the house if a deal had not been worked out by the deadline. It is 5 o'clock. This is the deadline. The storming, if it is going to happen, could happen at any moment. Eventually, it's about 9 p.m., they strike a deal. It's not a deal to resolve the situation, but it's a stopgap measure. We're going to get this out of the Olympic Village. We're going to get you guys out of Germany, and then you can figure this out. So what they're going to do is they're going to provide a plane, a Lufthansa passenger jet, to the terrorists who will then proceed with the hostages to an Arab country. And when they get there, then they can figure it out. Negotiate with the Israelis, whatever it may be, but we're going to get this situation out of the Olympics and out of Germany. And so to be clear here, Jeremy, the terrorists and the Israeli hostages, they are going to be taken by helicopter to an airport. At that airport, they're going to board a plane that's going to take them somewhere else to continue negotiations. Meanwhile, what is Shaul's reaction to all of this? Now, remember, Shaul, you know, to be back in Germany... And to see this unfolding, it's surreal for him. Building 31 is now vacant. The Israeli hostages and the commanders who have held them hostage for this entire day have now left to a makeshift helicopter pad at the back of the Olympic Village. All of us, the survivors, we saw how our teammates got off the, the buses with the terrorists and then how they climbed the helicopters. One of the helicopters now proceeds out over the Olympic site, out over the main stadium where half the lights are on. The second helicopter is now following it. I was thinking in a short time, probably they will be released and they will have an adventure to tell their families how they went through this, uh, this period, but they will be released. Pablo, remember everything I said about this deal having been struck? Yes. It's not a real deal. Because the Germans aren't intending for that plane ever to actually take off. After the break, what happens at the airport? The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there. There's a report of a burning helicopter. We have no idea what has happened to the hostages. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Now let's talk about the play of the week. 
The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom, Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. So, Jeremy, it's now nighttime in Munich, and German authorities have struck this deal where They'll allow the terrorists to take the Israeli hostages to a nearby airbase where both the terrorists and the hostages are all going to board a plane to go to another country while they continue negotiating. But secretly, the Germans have something else planned at the airport. What is it? The plan is that the hostages and the terrorists will leave the Olympic Village by helicopter and they will go to this nearby airbase. They think they're going to Cairo. They think they're going to Egypt with their hostages. But the Germans have decided we are not letting these guys leave Germany. The plan is to ambush the terrorists. There are going to be snipers on the roofs of the buildings surrounding the tarmac. And there's going to be a large team of police officers. 16 police officers are actually on the plane. And they are lying in wait. And they are going to take out the terrorists when they get on the plane. And so the entire world is watching, Jeremy. These helicopters depart the Olympic Village, departing Munich, and they're flying off to somewhere where there are not going to be cameras providing all of these images like we had just been getting from Munich. Right. It's a news vacuum out at First and Feldbrook, the airbase. It's going to be kind of word of mouth about what happens when they get there. So initially, this rumor starts circulating widely. These reports that the operation has been a success, that the hostages have been freed, they're safe, and it's over. It's over. And the Israelis, like Shaul Adani, and his teammates back at the Olympic Village, those who'd gotten out, they're told, everybody's safe. At midnight, I was able to get a line to my wife in Israel. Around that time, a radio broadcast there in Munich, all the hostages are safe. We were so happy, embraced each other and went to sleep. And then a government spokesman, a German government spokesman, gets on TV, American TV, and suggests, not with finality, but suggests that they're safe, that this is all going to be forgotten soon, this, this unfortunate incident. It's an unfortunate interruption of the Olympic Games. Uh, but, I mean, if all that comes out, as we hope it will come out or has come out, I think it will be forgotten after a few weeks. So, Jeremy, we're at the point where these two helicopters have flown away from the Olympic Village. They have landed at this airbase about 20 miles away. And 
on board are the nine Israeli hostages, their Palestinian terrorist captors, and the German police, they had planned this secret ambush instead of negotiations that would rescue these people. What actually happens at that airbase as we understand it now? It's a disaster, a fiasco. And it goes back to the lack of preparation, lack of training the Germans had to address this kind of a situation. They didn't have snipers. They basically put out the word that day, is there anybody here who's a good shot? And some guys volunteered. They didn't have night sights on their rifles. Apparently, there were no walkie-talkies. The units at the airbase could not communicate with each other. It was amateurish. I think that's being charitable. And so, no, the hostages were not safe. Almost as soon as the terrorists got off the helicopters and realized that, you know, there was no flight crew, you know, on the plane, a firefight broke out. Soon there's an update about what's happened at the airport, and it contradicts everything they've heard. The latest word we get from the airport is that, quote, all hell is broken loose out there. There's a report of a burning helicopter. We have no idea what has happened to the hostages. We heard automatic weapons fire. It went on for about 15, 20 seconds. And then after that, we could hear pop, pop. Just gotten the final word. You know, when I was a kid, my father used to say, our greatest hopes and our worst fears are Mm -hmm. seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They've now said that there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. So what happens is there's this firefight and in the midst of it, the terrorists kill all the hostages. They're strapped into the helicopters They're shot, and they blow up one of the helicopters with a hand grenade. And so the nine Israelis who were still alive, that they'd taken hostage, they've killed all of them. In this firefight as well, a German police officer was killed, Anton Fliegerbauer, who had volunteered for this duty. And as for the terrorists, what happened to them? Five were killed on the tarmac, And three were taken alive. And so how would you describe how Shaul processed all of this, physically, emotionally, Jeremy? I think numb is the best way to describe it. I did not cry. Some of them cried. I never cry. I'm sorry. Why no tears, Shaul? Since uh, maybe the Holocaust, I'm not crying. I don't know. Unable to cry. For anything? I don't know why. You know, I'm not forcing myself. You know, tears are a natural thing. Tears are not coming. Do you wish you could? I don't know. Uh, uh, that's a way of express sorrow. 
maybe it's uh, uh, to the outside. I keep the sorrow to my inside. But you felt sorrow. Awfully sorrow. Not only my personal loss. This is a loss for the country. And as for the Olympics, which had finally paused as, as clarity began to set in as to what exactly was happening with the Israeli delegation, what did the organizers do with the tragedy now that they are confronting here? What do they do with the biggest event on the planet being upstaged by the biggest story now on the planet? They have a memorial service on September 6th at the Olympic Stadium. On most days, this stadium holds 80,000 eager track and field fans. Today, instead, they came to a memorial service, an hour of memory for 11 fellow athletes from Israel slain yesterday during an abortive attempt by Palestinian guerrillas to gain the release of Arabs held prisoner in Israel. Controversially at the time, too, Pablo, there were many who thought they should cancel the rest of the games. Many thought the games should just stop for obvious reasons. But the IOC, led by an American at the time, the only American ever to lead the IOC, Avery Brundage, he insisted that the games go on. Mm. We cannot allow a handful of terrorists to destroy this nucleus of international cooperation and goodwill. The games must go on. The Israelis, the survivors, they were going home. They would be going back now to Israel with the caskets of their fallen teammates. Ten caskets. One casket went back to Ohio. David Berger, who was competing for Israel, he was American-born, grew up in Cleveland. He was among those who was killed. His body was flown home to Ohio. The others went back to Israel on the same plane with the survivors. And you know, the decision by the Israelis, which seems totally uncontroversial, right, to leave the games at that point. Of course. Well, there's only one Israeli I've spoken to who is critical of that decision. Shalou was critical. He said the Israelis should have stayed and that they should have been in the closing ceremony. I argued that the Israeli flag decorated with the black should parade at the closing ceremony. I still hold up to date. Our retreat was totally wrong. I never retreat. In reporting this story, Jeremy, you traveled with Shaul yourself this month, on September 5th, in fact, to the airport, the site of the failed German ambush where the nine Israeli Olympians were killed. And what was that trip like? What was it like for you and for Shaul? Well, Pablo, it was, it was, actually, it was even more than that. It was a pretty uh, extraordinary few days. I was in Germany at the beginning of September for a few days, and the trip started in northern Germany. And we went to Bergen-Belsen with Shaul. We spent two days at the concentration camp at Bergen-Belsen with Shaul. And the timing, it's uncanny. So there was a memorial service, a reunion of sorts for survivors of Bergen-Belsen on September 4th. And it was supposed to be the 75th anniversary. 
two years ago that did not take place because of COVID. So it was postponed for two years. So it became the 77th anniversary, Survivors of Belsen Memorial Service in Northern Germany, about an hour from Hanover. That was September 4th. Mm. The next morning was the 50th anniversary of the Munich Massacre. And Shul was there too. So, so we're talking about in less than 24 hours, he goes from this concentration camp where he'd been a prisoner as a child back to Munich where he had been a part of the Israeli team that was attacked where 11 died. And we took the train with him from Northern Germany down to Munich on September 4th, the evening of September 4th. And then we were at the memorial service at first in Feldbruck, the military air base where nine of the Israelis were killed and the German police officer, Anton Fliegerbauer. We sat with him literally on the tarmac uh, where the plane was, where the helicopters were, and talked to him about this journey of his, the journey of his life. And Shoal's not, as we've established, a very emotional guy. As he says, he keeps it on the inside. But when you think about the arc of his life, what he's experienced, what he has endured, what it means as a Jew, as an Israeli, you know, he finds a way to, to put that into perspective. What are the lessons of your story, your life story? Be optimistic. Uh, don't let uh, bad memories to rule you. And in my case, uh, also try to make sports uh, the way of your life. Why? When you compete during the walks, sometimes from the first step until the last step, you suffer sometimes, but you make that effort you want and you are so happy when you finish. So happy that you immediately ask when is the next race. And still today, Jeremy, at age 86, despite everything, everything that you have now told us, he still races. He still competes. He still takes part. <laughs> I don't think he's beating anybody at 86, <laughs> Pablo, but he's, he's still out there. He might take a day off from walking, but if he takes two days in a row, he says his legs start to feel uncomfortable. Mm. And he needs it. He needs the walking. It brings all that pain and all those blisters, but it clearly brings him some degree of serenity as well. And he's a remarkable guy when you think about what his life encompasses. He says he was lucky, right? In some senses, he was lucky. His family was on the caster train. He was in apartment two. He wasn't in apartment one or apartment three. The bomb went through his house on April 6th, 1941. It didn't detonate in his house. There is luck, but with the luck and with those second and third and fourth chances, he built a remarkable life. Jeremy Schaap, thank you for introducing us to a remarkable life. Thank you, Pablo. Thanks for indulging me. 
For more on Shaul's story, E60's The Survivor premieres this Tuesday night, September 20th on ESPN and will then be available to stream on ESPN Plus from there. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily, and our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Antel, Mike Philbrick, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Andre Soto, Tyrus Ray, Frank Saracino, Jason Costura, and Jackson Agelo. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs>